ladies and gentlemen, my name is Kim C, and I'm a university fiction teacher who is absolutely in love with the writing of Stephen King. I love it so much that nearly four years ago, I started a one-woman Stephen King podcast in my living room to boldly go more in-depth into the underrated King titles and bring all of you with me. Since then, I've read a lot of King stories and made a couple friends, and a few weeks back, I had the great privilege of interviewing a rather wonderful individual who shares my love of Stephen King's writing to the nerdiest, most impressive decibel. Today's Constant Reader interview, my first of 2024, is not only a maestro of the horror genre, but the arts at large. This episode's guest is an actor, playwright, musician, and published fiction author of 2022's Mary, 2023's Nestlings, and the upcoming novella Rest Stop that will hit shelves in 2024. Not only is he one of the most epic constant reader interviews the show has ever been blessed with, but he is also my hometown amigo. We shared at one point, the same stomping grounds, and Nat knows the great big wide Southwestern Open the way my heart does, and it's so, so special. He knows my streets, and I know his, and I think that's a recipe for how tumbleweeds get made. Nat Cassidy is cool as a cucumber, quicker than a New York minute, and his Stephen King reader knowledge is at international Olympic levels, my good buddies. I am melted by the mastery, and in this interview, all I do is learn. I get a lovely helping of Shakespeare, relish retellings of Nat's Manhattan meetups with Steve himself, the Stephen King characters we would both chat up at the bar, and so much more, folks. So much. If ever there was a constant reader interview to treat yourself with, this is the one. Really quick, quick, there is a buyer beware warning for all ye who dare enter. We've got some minor spoilers along the way for many titles, especially if you haven't yet read 2022's Fairy Tale and plenty of other King titles along the way, so heads up, buttercups. These constant reader interviews are free range, and my guests and I tend to graze and prance and be completely free, so please be alert. Don't kill me if anything gets ruined. I would say it's wise and very healthy if you are a listener who finds yourself with a minimum of 25 Stephen King titles under your belt just to safely proceed. Just saying, just saying, buyer beware. And now, dear ones, happy year of the dragon to you all and to help us usher in 2024, allow me to present the supremely talented, wildly fun, Stephen King superfan and my desert brother, Nat Cassidy. All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Nat Cassidy. What's it like to be a mega cool star, Nat? Oh my god, I'm zooming in uh, in the back of a limo right now. <laughs> Fans are whooshing by me. It's uh, all in a day's work. I have no idea. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You are our very first novelist. No shit! Yeah! What an honor! <laughs> so excited to have you and pick your brain on your amazing King Journey. You and I are already getting on like a house on fire. Oh my god. We for for listeners who aren't privy to our off mic conversations, we basically are from the exact same area. 
I know a restaurant that is very close to where Kim lives. It's, it's just too many coincidences happening at once. It's delightful. We've boarded the bullet train to Magic Town. That's right. <laughs> That's what has happened. I hope I give other novelists a good reputation. I hope I don't turn you off a bus as a profession. Could never. Could never. We're going to get started here. You are in our constant reader hot seat. And the very first question, going back to the beginning. Who is Stephen King? <laughs> what was your very first Stephen King title? And how old were you? I have been a Stephen King obsessive for almost my entire life as a reader. I think there were like three or four years when I, between learning how to read and then just becoming like full on committed Stephen King obsessive. So I was, does that math check out? Yeah, I think that math checks out because um, I'm also speaking off the top of my head at the moment uh, and it's about numbers, but I think I was around eight or nine and which seems to be an age that gets referenced a lot on this show. And when people like answer that question, there's something about being nine years old that is just really perfect for discovering Stephen King. If you're a specifically precocious type of reader and my first title, I think was, I'd actually started it because my brother had gotten it out from the library and I will never forget. It was a mass market. It wasn't a paperback. It was mass market, but it was from the library. So it was Buckram bound. So it was a hardcover mass market where they had like basically shellacked the cover of the mass market onto a Buckram bound mass market book. And it was the Tim Curry TV movie cover. And I started reading it and I loved it, but I was stealing the book from my brother. And so I knew I couldn't read it all. And it, it was it. So it was, you know, the size of my head and I knew I wasn't going to get through it in time. So I had to just put it down. I was too intimidated by the size, not the content. I was already like fully on board. But then I picked up Pet Cemetery, and that was the first one that I read, you know, front to back. And I had a very appropriately Stephen Kingy group of friends. They were like, I called them my stand by me friends, basically. <laughs> I had this little core group of four other dirtbag desert kids uh, like me. And one of which was like my best, best friend. I, you know, if I was Will Wheaton, he was River Phoenix. We were just like so fucking tight. Sorry, I'm probably going to curse a lot because that's how my words string together in my head. <laughs> no worries. I apologize in advance. But so we were we were like just intensely close as friends. And so we him and I specifically the rest of the group generally, but but specifically he and I just became like huge Stephen King readathon buddies. And we would read the books together. We would compare notes as we were reading them. I will never forget accidentally spoiling for him that Judd Crandall's wife dies while we were reading Pet Cemetery together for the first time in like 1989. And uh, yeah, so like from that point on, I was raised by a, a single mom who was a big uh, reader of like popular fiction in general and genre fiction in general. So like there was a bookshelf in our living room where uh, I'll never forget. It was like the, our record player and cassette player, you know, the entertainment system, and then a bunch of paperbacks above it. And there was a whole shelf that was dedicated to Stephen King, who she loved. And then there was also a ton of Dean Koontz books, Michael Crichton, Anne Rice. Like they were just all kind of sitting there. And I, you know, it was aspirational to me. It was like one of these days I'm going to, I'm going to know what's in these books. Cause like, I just see the spine. I see like, she was a stand obsessive 
So, like, I'll never forget, like, you know, the weird cover of the stand where it's the two figures fighting, like, weird dude with a mullet and, like, the bird-headed guy that have nothing to do with the book whatsoever. Uh, but I was like, one of these days I'm going to know what's going on with those two guys and things like that. So uh, it was around that time. My mom never said I couldn't. She wasn't one of those moms that was like, you know, not until you're older. She was basically just like, well, if you do, I'm not going to clean up the mess that it leaves in your head. So, like, you have to be prepared <laughs> to be fucked up by these books. <laughs> you know, she was a single working mom. She was like, I don't have time to, like, deal with your nightmares. So I'll read it when you think you're ready. I can't remember if Pet Cemetery was from the library. As we have discussed off mic, I grew up right across the street from the Maricopa County Library. Uh, and I basically just kind of lived in there for, you know, we were poor. So like, that's where I got my books. And also it was free air conditioning, as you know, uh, very important to uh, growing up in that area. So I just spent all my days in the Maricopa Library and getting horror books. But I can't remember if, if Pet Cemetery came from the library or if it came from, there was a used bookstore where I grew up and it was, I think it was called The Tattered Page. I think was the name of it, which is a beautiful used bookstore name. Uh, and they had a great horror selection that I would just kind of also walk around and just stare at the covers and, and wonder if one day I would know the stories behind all of these amazing works of art. So I might have bought it for like a dollar or I might have gotten it from the library. But anyway, from from that point on, then, especially my friend and I, we were just determined to read the entire back catalog, which thankfully was it was a lot, but it wasn't like that much. I can only imagine what it's like to try and get into Stephen King now. Like we only had like 12 books to catch up on. We read all of those. We read all the books that like Stephen King recommended. Just how I like became a huge Peter Straub fan and Ramsey Campbell and Ted Klein and just kind of like that whole crew. And then we started reading like other contemporaries like Dean Koontz and John Saul and just, you know, the whole array of 80s and 90s paperback mass market horror authors. And yeah, Pet Cemetery basically changed my life. I still think it's one of his most perfect books. And it's, it's the one that I've, not the one, but it's one of the ones that I've reread the most times. Because shockingly, I don't think a nine-year-old really grasps all the nuances and complexities of a, a treatise about death and mortality. But, you know, I tried. And that got me started on the uh, the long and winding road that I continue on to this day. That brings us to this podcast. Beautiful. I love it. I love these desert roots. <laughs> yeah, right. And like, I think about that a lot because like, so I grew up, as I said, this this won't mean much to anyone who's not from Arizona, but I grew up on 32nd Street in Bell in the early 80s, early to mid 80s. And at the time, it wasn't the wrong side of the tracks, but it basically like was the tracks. There was just nothing like east of us. There was desert and there was like a used car lot. There was a trails there was a leather shop called trails <laughs> and there was like a little strip mall but of other than that before the library came to like just behind our house there was just nothing and like when i i graduated high school in 2000 and that was like right when the 51 was like built to reach there so there was a highway that like eventually intersected with our main street corner but other than that like there was we just had to sit in our lonesomeness, in our desert lonesomeness. And I went to school outside of the district because the schools my brother went to were like in Scottsdale. And my mom wanted me to go to those same schools. So like all my friends lived way far away from me. And my mom was working. I was a latchkey kid. 
Arizona is not really the place where you like hop on your bike and ride to your best friend's house or something like that. Cause it's 115 degrees outside. So like, you just like sit and like to have to find things to do. And Stephen King was really not just entertainment for me, but he was just kind of like my window to socializing. It was just like such a lonely Spartan existence. You know, I, I only had my brother who was older than me and he didn't want to hang out with a little shitty kid like I was. And we also lived in this area where we were basically the only family that owned our house. Everyone else rented. So like it was just a high turnover of residents and stuff like that. There were no other kids my age. And so it really was just like me and Stephen King just kind of hanging out every day. Not the next book of mine, but hopefully the book that will come out after the next book of mine if my publishers approve it, is about my childhood, kind of. It's it's my little wink and a nod to, like, kids on bikes and stuff like that. And it's dedicated to Stephen King because I explicitly say in the dedication, like, you were as big a part of my childhood as I was. So, like, this book goes out to you. So, yeah, it was... Uh, Stephen King was just, like, a very... I find it hard to even articulate quite how foundational he was as, like, a as a presence in my life growing up. Because like I say, I'm a fan or I'm, I'm an obsessive fan or something like that. But that like doesn't go far enough to me. And I don't want to sound like an Annie Wilkes either and be like, you are my parental figure, Stephen King. <laughs> or anything like that. Because it's not, there's just like this, this inarticulatable gratitude that I have to his books. Like they basically raised me in a very visceral way. Oh my God, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> my heart has liquefied in my chest oh my god we got to get you to a doctor i know i'm swallowing (laughs) my tears down because i just know this life you speak of i know the desolate nothingness of where we're both from yeah that has a lot of comfort and magic and also horror because yeah you could easily die so easily oh yeah i still shake my boots out in case like a scorpion has crawled into them (laughs) like everything's trying to kill you At all times. And it's beautiful. I was not fortunate enough to read King until I was 26. So I did not have those formative (laughs) years shaped by him. But it's so beautiful to vicariously live through your memory. Mm. It's pretty magical. Yeah, I'm very grateful for it. And I think a lot about, you know, again, like how many people say, especially people of like our peer group, that they discovered King at a similar age. I was listening to your episode with Dan Caffrey, and it's a phenomenal episode. And I really enjoyed the discussion about the academic relationship to Stephen King, because it's been an interesting one to watch develop over the course of my lifetime. Because I definitely remember, you know, being a, a King fan in those years, and especially going into like the 90s, when he sort of experienced his critical nadir, like when, you know, he was... I love those books. I will champion those books. But it seemed like reviewers were being particularly unkind to him around the early 90s and stuff like that. And he was looked down upon as of an era that itself was kind of gross. You know, the 70s and 80s horror boom was maybe a little more extreme than it should have been and hypersexualized and just like simple entertainment. And when I, I was never not without a Stephen King book, like it was my security blanket wherever we went. And I would catch a lot of flack from it. And I, you know, a lot of guff from adults and from, I haven't gone into like my background as an actor yet, but like I basically was a precocious child actor doing Shakespeare 
all the time. Like I was also obsessed with Shakespeare and had big literary pretensions and was a big classic literature reader as well. And so I would interact with people who were the smart readers and the, the literature readers and they would give me shit for liking Stephen King. Like it was like confessing to some ghastly sexual kink that like, oh, you read Stephen King? Like we don't talk about that right. in polite society. That's bad. So it's been kind of fascinating watching this generation that was kind of raised by Stephen King now become the new generation of literary critics and reviewers and people who can deal with literary analysis and things like that and, and speak very beautifully and coherently about his worth as an author. Because I I think that there is something very there's something very profound, I think, to experiencing Stephen King at a young age when you're like, this is a big ramble, forgive me, but I, I feel like you'll be receptive to it. There is something very beautiful, very poignant about experiencing Stephen King at around nine or 10, just thinking of like coming off of Goosebumps and Benicula and like, you know, the great children's literature that kids who are predisposed to read Stephen King are probably reading. But, you know, it's very, it's for a specific audience. It's very cursory. It's it's a little, I don't want to say shallow or superficial, but, you know, it's, it's a smaller word count. You're not getting into these characters' psychologies as much. And then to like just jump into these multi-hundred-thousand-word, sure, occasionally bloated, <laughs> but experiential texts. And, like, one of the things I love about Stephen King is that he writes such experiential fiction. We learn everything about these characters, for better or worse. We learn their bowel habits. We learn how they masturbate. We learn just, like, all these things. Because, you know, they were written in, like, such this like, stream-of-consciousness dump into his Wang word processor. And I do think that there is like something really beneficial to that, especially if you're a kid who's kind of growing up isolated. We've already touched on academics a little bit, but uh, there was a book that Harold Bloom, dubious Harold Bloom wrote that was very important to me as a, as a Shakespearean called The Invention of the Human. I take or leave Harold Bloom a lot. I have a hate-hate relationship with a lot of his work, but like there are some things that he wrote that resonate with me very strongly. And The Invention of the Human is one of them in that... He kind of posits that the thing that made Shakespeare such like a, a genius figure, genius of like the true sense of the word, such a, a generative figure, such an important figure in literature is because Shakespeare was kind of the first dramatist slash first like just fiction writer to have his characters overhear themselves as they talk. And so you'll see in these soliloquies many of which I've done many times. So like, I, I know that this is true and it's like, a, it's a very exciting thing to get to portray where a character will be giving the soliloquy to the audience. And they'll say like, I'm going to do this thing. Wait, do I really want to do this thing? Now that I think about it, maybe what I actually need to do is this thing. Yeah, I need to do this thing because that'll get me the thing I really, okay, we're all on the same page. Okay, I'm going to go do that thing now. And like, they have this journey in the text so that's what sets Shakespeare apart from like Marlowe or Johnson or or Webster, who are, are much more declamatory in their monologues. I'm going to go do this thing. OK, let's go do this thing. <laughs> and I, I like to reference Harold Bloom because Harold Bloom was such a fucking pompous ass bag when uh, when Stephen King got his National Book Award, Lifetime Achievement Award, basically. Uh, Harold Bloom was like specifically offended by that. Uh, and I'm not saying Stephen King invented this, but I think Stephen King embodies 
that sort of idea in an incredibly beautiful and for like a nine-year-old an eight-year-old like a really like helpful way you actually like get to witness this great dumping of adult thoughts and like kind of learn what it is to be a conscientious entity through these books i feel like his literate literature value cannot be overstated specifically as a bridge from like young oriented uh, youth oriented literature to adult literature and just getting used to having all of these crazy conflicting thoughts that adults have that was a very long-winded and tangential <laughs> way of saying that i i think he's a very foundational writer for a lot of people of this generation and hopefully for future generations as well and i think it's actually really poignant that you kind of came to him at 22 because now as a 42 year old i look at 22 year olds and i'm like well you might as well just be nine years old like you're you're a baby <laughs> at 22 and that is also like a very transitional age and like i can see why reading his works might resonate at that age too for the first time because there's just there's something just so fucking gloriously human about his works i'll end it there because that seems like a good thesis statement oh my god that well <laughs> can you tell i'm excited to talk to you <laughs> Yes, and I'm so thrilled. But if you ever get bored writing novels, I think you need to teach a class. You need to be a professor. <laughs> professor Cassidy, you'd have a packed lecture house. <laughs> I do have a lot of tweed jackets. So epic. So glorious. Ugh. I'm a chatty girl, and when I'm struck silent, <laughs> that means uh, it's off the chain. <laughs> I'll try and keep my answer shorter going forward. Not needed. Not needed. This is amazing. So I think you mentioned, I don't know if it was off air or on air, forgive me, but you have read everything that he has published. Correct. Awesome. And some that he hasn't. Okay. Oh my God. That's awesome. <laughs> I have a book club for Stephen King and it's a lot of new fans a lot of seasoned fans and I have a lady in my book club she's lovely named Molly and she refuses to read the newest ones just in case mm. just in case she has to hold on to a few precious unread yeah. ones I think we all have lovely personal rituals with some of the titles yeah so I wanted to know if you are somebody who release day you have it in your hand or what's sort of your process for reading the newest since rose matter i think that was the first might have been rose matter or might have been insomnia because i'm forgetting which one came out first they're like 92 93 94 you know thereabouts but that i think was the first whichever one of those it was that was like the first one that i read as it came out and ever since then it's you know it's just like a thing like the next stephen king book comes out and i drop whatever else i'm reading and it used to be I would like go to like a Borders or a Barnes and Noble or a Walden Books or whatever I could find and like get it as soon as I could. There is something really additionally nice about like the ebook age that we live in where like we'll just like wake up and have it <laughs> downloaded and ready to go. And I will still then like go buy a hard copy as well. And I'll usually get an audio copy also because I, I tend to do all three at the same time. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, it's like, then you can always be reading. Like, sometimes you can't read the hard copy. Sometimes you can't read the ebook, And some, sometimes you just, like, want to, like, have it happen to you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love I love that method. And and I, I'm, like, an old school Stephen King book on tape 
consumer anyway. Like I literally used to like just go to bed, go to sleep listening to Stephen King books on tape. I another brief tangent. I worked with him for a week in like 2004, 2005. And it was one of the trippiest things about it was just hearing his voice because I was so used to hearing like him read the introduction to Nightmares and Dreamscapes on tape. And so just like hearing his very recognizable voice live and in person was like, I feel like I should be like going to sleep right now. Like it's very strange. But yeah, so like I will usually then try and read whatever new thing comes out right away. I will say that has changed a little bit especially since like becoming a, a professional novelist because like I have other reading obligations that I have to do and I can't like quite set my TBR aside the way I used to. And also like when I read Stephen King, he does something to me as a writer that like I kind of need to not have happen during like a first draft of something. So I will like occasionally have to now wait. I, I wasn't able to get to Holly right away and fairy tale right away and things like that. Uh, but I'll try and get to it as soon as possible. And then I cross it off the list. <laughs> I can't imagine having a backlog. It's like so foreign to me just because I've been doing it for so long. I'm jealous of people that like have all these books ahead of them. It's so it's so exciting. Really quick, I have to know, what, where were, when were you working with him? What was happening? What was going on? <laughs> We're, and working with him is probably a little too fancy. I So I'm I'm an actor as well, and I live in New York. I don't, I don't know if I've said that already, uh, but I've been living in New York since I left Arizona. So I've been living in New York for 20 years at this point. And like my first or second year here, he was doing a workshop of the play that the musical that he wrote with John Mellencamp, Ghost Brothers of Darkland County. And my best college friend was reading stage directions for that workshop. You know, it was a script in hand workshop. And because he knew what a Stephen King mega fan I was and still am he was like I'm gonna get you into this and I was also going through a really bad breakup at the time so like it was it was doubly uh, appreciated that he gave me something to to focus on but like basically because stage directions were covered and it was a workshop I didn't really have anything to do <laughs> so I just like sat in this empty theater with Stephen King and John Mellencamp like just next to me and occasionally they'd be like would you mind like grabbing us a coffee real quick or what did you think of that scene like does do you think that reads and like i'm just a 22 year old just sitting there yeah that was a good scene i like that and do you want me to move that music stand like i can fix that a little bit and that was it like i really had no functional purpose other than to just like hang out with them and then he took us all out to dinner at the end of the workshop and i just got to like talk at him for a, a long time and he signed a bunch of my books and it was magic it was just an amazing experience and my biggest regret is that it being 2004 2005 cameras were still like a separate thing you had to have on you and i did not so like i have no pictures of us i like i could have had pictures of us or something but it's not documented at all except for my signed books yeah, so like I wish I would have uh, had the foresight to like buy a disposable camera or something like that. But yeah, it was an amazing uh, little experience, and it's a it's an okay musical. <laughs> that, was, that was maybe the hardest part because I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's not not the best medium for this story, but yeah, there's, I think there's a reason why not a lot of people have seen it. Holy crap! Sorry, Steve, if you're listening. <laughs> that is the best story ever. We're gonna circle back to that a little bit later <laughs> on because oh my god, our next question. 
this is one that I just love. So definitely do what thou wilt uh, with this one. Do you have any Stephen King titles that you just treasure? But you've noticed not a lot of people feel the same and vice versa. Have you noticed that you're not really keen on some of the titles that people just praise from the rooftops? Yeah. What would those ones be? Hmm. The first question is easy because it's basically all of them. <laughs> I, with the exception of the one that I will, well, there are maybe two that I think can qualify for the second half of this answer. With those two exceptions, there's really not a title that I don't think I would champion on one level or another, but usually like totally wholeheartedly. People give Four Past Midnight a hard time. I fucking love Four Past Midnight. I love the Langoliers. I <laughs> love Secret Window, Secret Garden. The Sundog I could take or leave. It's just kind of meh for me, but I fucking love it. <laughs> uh, Library Policeman, a little problematic in places, maybe yeah. a little uh, triggering, but great. You'd kill a monster with a wad of licorice. Fucking sign me up. I love under the I love the Tommy Knockers. I love everything in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I'll read fucking dedication and laugh my ass. Like I the I love that I love how absurd that story is. I love how disgusting that story is. I love Rose Matter. I love Dolores Claiborne. I love I and some of these books I think have like gotten esteem as the years have gone on, but like I certainly remember at the time people were like, What is this feminist wannabe garbage with Rose Matter or uh you know, insomnia. What is what is this like bloated Greek mythology sort of thing? And Rose Matter also with all the Greek mythology and stuff like that. I love Desperation. I love the Regulators. I love it all. I I even had a uh, I posted something not too long ago about just like how grateful I am. One of the reasons why like Stephen King is is the idol of my life. It's not just because of his work, but it's also his work ethic. Like he's hugely inspirational to me on that front as a as a playwright as an actor as now a novelist like he is someone that i turn to for inspiration not just as content but as the way in which he relates to work and like i'm so grateful to have an idol like that who went through that period in like the 90s when and the late 80s when it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to just start churning out the same shit like all the other, not all the, I shouldn't say all the others, but so many other authors of his peer group of that like stratospherically brand name famous level literally turn themselves into brand names. Like Tom Clancy is a brand name. Yeah. And you'll see like a Tom Clancy TM book written by someone else because you can just like write a Tom Clancy book. But Stephen King was like, okay, what if I do series of books one of which is written by my pseudonym and it's got like a repertory cast of the same characters in different roles or like what if i write like these two novels that are like angry feminist stories that my mom would have loved and they're connected by like a solar eclipse or like uh what if i read a serialized novel like dickens would and i don't know where it goes and it's set in a prison in the 30s or what if i write another serialized novel that is pay what you want on the internet that he never fucking finished uh <laughs> we're all waiting for the end of the plant steve and like, you know, he just like he never stopped trying to find a new way to be excited about the work. So even the things that aren't successful, even even Dreamcatcher, like I read that and the story behind Dreamcatcher is so poignant to me that 
I don't get lost in the, yeah, the flaws in that novel because I read that novel and I see someone like in excruciating pain who literally almost died and is like writing to pull himself out of that. So there's just like something so wonderful about the meta narrative of so many of these books. Like Dreamcatcher was going to be called Cancer and is, <laughs> and Tabitha told him that's a bad idea. But like, just even knowing that, like, of course, yeah, like someone whose body is causing him massive amounts of trauma and pain right now. And he is, he's an addictive personality already and is having to fight an addiction to painkillers. Yeah, like, yeah, he would write a book that's like called Cancer, that is about like the metastasis of biology and is about things coming out of your asshole trying to kill you and the bathroom being this place for horror. And like, you know, there are government agencies out to get you. And like, it's a very paranoid and sloppy novel. Yeah, it's fuck. It The book is wild and it doesn't work on a number of levels. But like the reasons why it doesn't work, work for me, which is why it pains me that I don't like Lisey's story at all. And I really have not, I, you know, I'm almost hesitant to say this in case he ever comes across this episode, but I, I fucking hated fairy tale so much. <laughs> I did. I know you liked it too. I I can go into why I didn't like Fairy Tale, but it it didn't work for me in a way that no other Stephen King book has not worked for me, and it broke my heart because there's so much about it. I lo- like I again like speaking of like things I can pull out of it. I'm a Radar fan for life. Like yeah, I love Radar. I will I will fight <laughs> tooth and nail for esteem for Radar. So none of them are lost causes to me. Even Lisey's story. Like there's a lot about Lisey's story that I love. And I liked Lisey's story more in audiobook. So, like, that was something. Like, it was it, it was a different experience having Mayor Winningham read it as opposed to, like, reading all the fucking shared slang that Scott and, and Lisey have together. That was just like, I don't need to read <laughs> I hate all these words so much. Soisa, baby love. Oh, Soisa. <laughs> oh, oh, God. And, uh, you know, they're flying Smuck. out of my head. Smucking. Yeah, smucking. Smucking yeah. was the one that was like, oh, if I have to read smucking one more time. And there, there's lovely things about it, too. I love Booyah Moon. Like, I love the idea of Booyah Moon. That's great. That's fucking great. The Long Boy is great. It's not a lost cause. Uh, it just, like, didn't do it for me. And, like, that book, that came out right when I was doing that workshop with him. And I remember him even saying in the room how excited he was about this book. Like, it was his best book yet. Because it's about his wife. It's about his marriage. And, like, that's, I fucking love that. But the book itself, I was like, I don't know. I don't love it. And it kind of felt like Secret Window, Secret Garden again with like the little rabid fanboy and stuff like that. But fairy tale for me, I think part of the problem with fairy tale is like I am now, even though it like feels like weirdly immodest to say this, but I'm now like a I'm a professional novelist. Like I write novels. And so like I think fairy tale, I think, was like the first book that I had like an editor's eye mm. on. I had a craftsman's eye on. And he's always been a writer. You know, I was a playwright for like 15 years. So like I always used to like look to him for dramaturgical advice and inspiration in like a different medium. So even if a book didn't work for me, like there were lessons I could learn to be a better horror playwright. But now as someone who writes horror novels, like my critical eye is just different. And my big problem with fairy tale, besides the voice, because the voice was a big problem for me. And like, I, I know he, it's ultimately revealed slight spoilers for fairy tale that he's not a 17 year old narrating this. He's like a 24 year old, even as a 24 year old, that voice just didn't work for me. And but the, my biggest problem 
was that do you want to do you want to get into like fairy tale specifics? Do you want to get like nerdy deep dive right now? Let's do okay. it, buddy. I just had my book club. Oh yeah. Bomb fairy tale. Oh yeah. Yep. And feel free to disagree because I know you like it. I know Neil likes it. Uh, Neil McRobert likes it. I don't begrudge anyone who does like it. I don't think less of anyone who liked the book. But for me, Charlie's his name, right? Charlie's mm-hmm. the the protagonist's name. Yep. He is a perfect character before he goes to Empus. He has nothing to learn. And he has nothing to solve. His dad is, is in recovery for alcoholism. His crotchety old man friend, he turned into a better person and now he's dead. All he has is to try and save this dog. And then once he does that, there's 300 pages to go. So the trip through Empus, and this was one of the reasons why it was just like so dispiriting for me because like it just felt no compulsion to read it because there was no need for any of this to happen. And, it, you know, I also found it problematic, especially as a, a Jewish reader, that like he became more and more Aryan, the more perfect he became in Empath. Like he was just like became this like Aryan super youth, uh, blonde haired, <laughs> blue eyed, like already a jock. And he was already a jock even. He's a jock before he goes in there. So like there's nothing to be gained by it as a character. For me, this is my prescriptive writer brain. This could be a disaster, but like the way I had, it's so hard to like turn off writer brain now and be like, here's how I would have done it. And I've never articulated this out loud. So this could be a disaster. (laughs) Like for me, what it was missing was like, if Charlie's dad was still an alcoholic and there was a more palpable ticking clock to get out of there, because he's like, my dad is probably drinking himself to death right now. There's allusions to like, oh, I'm worried my dad might start drinking. But like, we've already like tied that story off with a bow before he goes into the well. So there was no urgency to it. Uh, It was just kind of an intellectual idea. Like, I hope my dad's okay. But if he was like in bad shape and he had to get out, there would have been something. Or alternately, if his dad was still a big alcoholic and the old man whose name I'm blanking on. Mr. Bowditch. Mr. Bowditch. Yes, thank you. If he hadn't died... Here's my here's my big fix, my big swing for the fences fix for fairy yeah. tale for me. Is if all of that Empus stuff is a flashback of Bowditch telling Charlie what happened to him. And the book basically ends with Charlie having to make the decision of like, do I want to do that too? Do I have it within me to be a hero or something like that? Or like, can I take my dad there to cure him or something? But it like ends with, you know. Because that story of the the princess and, you know, I mean, that's problematic in and of itself that our female lead literally has no mouth, <laughs> literally cannot speak for herself. But like if that had been just like a, you know, almost like a, a win through the keyhole sort of sort of moment where like we find out how Bowditch became who he is. And then Charlie gets to decide if he wants to have something similar happen to him instead of just like this very neat and easy and I love the first chunk of that book. I love all that stuff with Bowditch and, and all the stuff in the real world. It's really just until we get to the fantasy world, we get to the fairy tale where I'm like, I don't know what purpose this is serving for any of these characters other than keeping Radar alive, which I fully support. That was very poignant. I had just lost my old dog around that time. So like, I get it. I, like the love for a dog is really real, especially watching them age. But yeah, I just felt no need for that story. Which is, you know, Stephen King is so good at stakes and he's so good at stories that have a need to them that it just it didn't work for me in a way that broke my heart. I didn't like having these prescriptive sort of 
fixes in my head. I wanted to just like lose myself in it. That's my very long ramble on, on fairy tale. Oh, it's so good, Nat. Like, that is a really, really healthy criticism. It works so well. And I agree because for me, I gave it a little bit more slack because mm. when Radar is like doing good and Empress, mm. the second that happens, that's when the book loses it for me. Because yeah. then, then there's no more urgency why are we at here? all. Right. And then you get thrown in jail and it's like, oh, why do you have to get out? Oh my God, Nat. The last third, the Deep Moline, wherever that, that was, I too was like, we, this is not good. This is yeah. not working for me. So the last third, I have huge problems with. So you are not alone. You are not yeah. alone in the criticism there. I gave it a lot of slack for, all right, fantasy world. I'm just going to zero in on this Wizard of Oz experience mm -hmm. for radar. But then the second that radar is in a decent spot, yeah. there is no more there's no more conflict right and like getting radar on that that carousel or, or whatever it was was so tense like that was great that was so great good well i'm glad i'm glad we can agree on that yes yes because the last third for me serious problemos i was yeah. like ah whoever is in charge here <laughs> yeah and like this is no fault of his at all because this man has generated more story than like any other single human being <laughs> that I can think of. <laughs> I know. And they've all been really distinct. But there was something about, you know, getting trapped in prison and then like having to be a gladiator and stuff like that. Like that was all stuff I feel like I've seen so many times in other things. Similarly, and I did not have a problem with this ultimately because I wound up really liking this book. But later, the book later, the way it began, I was like, wow, like not only is this kid seeing dead people and that's a thing we've encountered before but like even like the way he's seeing them like the dead bicyclist and stuff like that like i've seen these exact images in other stories and like so there was just kind of like oh uh, you know again no skin off his nose whatsoever i don't fault him for that for all i know he doesn't even remember that like we see a dead bicyclist in the sixth sense but like for me as you know a someone who for whom that stuff is like more fresh in my head it was just it was just like a little deflating to be like i've seen this before and then i think later gets great i really liked later later i think has some really interesting and again like going back to like why i'm so grateful for king's like restlessness there's some reveals in that book that he's never done before and are like really fucking wild <laughs> like have you read have you read later yet i love later yeah it's so good and like Sorry, spoilers, everybody, but I'll, I'll keep it kind of vague. But the incest thing was like, what the fuck? Yeah. So interesting and unexpected. So like, you know, I don't even know if it worked as like a story because I was so shocked by it. And I loved that feeling of like, oh, my God, that's fucking ballsy. <laughs> so yeah, like the slightly pedestrian first chunk of that book was just kind of like, huh. and yeah, the last major chunk of fairy tale just kind of felt similarly of just like you know i've read planet hulk i know these like you know uh, gladiator sort of stories i know he's not gonna die i'm not worried for charlie at all right so it's like what are we doing what are we doing here agree can we hit the gas please yeah exactly <laughs> bring some more giant grasshoppers or something more mermaids yeah that was awesome oh my gosh i'm drooling hard case crime fan <laughs> Yeah, they're all so good. And what was weird, I don't know, maybe I was just reading George R. R. Martin at that time, so the incest didn't really phase me, but <laughs> because our narrator, I think his name's Jamie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think you're right. Because he has this ability and we kind of find out at the end, I was like, oh, and I had a friend of mine say, hold the phone. Like, how are you just, this is a big deal. Yeah. And I was like, you're right. You're right. It is kind of a big deal. For whatever reason, I guess I was just. Yeah, the old incest twist. <laughs> exactly. It. Exactly. I was like, oh, well, the Lannisters have just been, you know, <laughs> banging each other forever. So it's fine, I guess. You're so jaded. I really was. <laughs> All right, Mr. Nat, I want to talk about villains. All right, we can do that. Let's jump over to your favorites and why are they your favorites? Hmm. I love Leland Gaunt. I love Andre Linoge. I love Randall Flagg, of course. Yeah. I love Tack. I think Tack's fun. I love Reverend Lowe in Cycle of the Werewolf. I think he's really compelling. I love his, like, nerds turned villains. Arnold Cunningham and uh, Harold Lauder. Like, I find that to be very poignant and interesting. I fucking love Henry Bowers. Like, yeah. that detestable little piece of shit. <laughs> There's a short story called The Dune. Oh, my God. Which has I a love great it. twist. Yeah. And I, Harvey Beecher, I think his name is. And he's not set up as a villain at the beginning of the story. And it's, like, literally the last, like, sentence of the story where you're just, oh, fuck. I love it. I love that. I love Christine. There's yeah. something about Christine that I love because she's just unstoppable. Yep. And that, like that is my that's my real answer to this. As like figures go, it's probably like Andre Linoge or Leland Gaunt that you know as or even like Margaret White. Like there are villains like that I, that I love. But my favorite favorite villains are kind of not characters, even though ironically he does villain characters so well. Annie Wilkes is another one. I love Annie Wilkes so much. But I think my real favorites are things like Christine, the stone formations in N, and <laughs> you know what my maybe might be my favorite is the Dolphin Hotel in 1408. <gasps> like I just love the villains, and maybe it's maybe again, like it's kind of, you know, the more I've been involved in like story creation as well now. But there's just something so delightful about the unstoppable force that you cannot reason with. Like, you can beat Annie Wilkes with a typewriter to death. You can crush Margaret White's heart telepathically. There are things you can do to them. But I actually can't even remember if this is the ending of Christine the novel now or if I'm just remembering. But, like, she's gonna, even though she's been crushed, like, she's still gonna reform and come back together. Or, like, you can't reason with the room 1408 in the Dolphin Hotel. Or those stone formations are just going to drive you mad. There's just something about that that I find so satisfying. It's just the unstoppable downer of an ending. The Wendigo in Pet Cemetery, Just, you know, all those, like, forces of nature that are ultimately on... You, you can't reason with. You can't negotiate with. I love that. Oh, those are terrific. <laughs> those are so good. 1408 is the only short story that my breathing changes when I read it. It yeah. wrecks me. And it's mostly just the phone. Yeah. This is nine. This is nine. Your friends are dead. This is nine. Which, which kind of comes back a little bit. I don't think you're there in the dark tower yet, but it kind of comes back a tiny <gasps> bit. Holy fuck. Most people don't now. notice. Most people don't notice. And here's a fun 1408 little side anecdote, too. I first, you know, again, it's like a completist. I first encountered 1408 well before everything's eventual it was first released as a book on tape collection called blood and smoke which was four stories about cigarettes 
that came out like 1998, 1999 or something like that. All of which eventually wound up on Everything's Eventual. It's like In the Death Room and uh, Lunch at the Gotham Cafe and 1408 and one other that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But uh, they're all read by King. They're all read by him in his delightful little voice. And I shit you not, the audiobook of 1408 is one of the scariest audiobooks I've ever heard. For those that have not encountered it, and thankfully they use the same recording in the Everything's Eventual audiobook, but there is musical accompaniment to it, and it happens at the very end of the story, and it's one of his best scary stories. So you're already just kind of like, Jesus Christ. And then there's this music <laughs> sting. It is a jump scare that I've never experienced in an audiobook, and it scared the fucking shit out of me oh my god so i will always look at 1408 as one of the most like satisfying short story experiences i've ever had because it was just like sudden dissonant atonal saxophone riff just like blares out of nowhere and your heart falls out of your asshole and you're just like oh my god Uh, (laughs) and it's perfect so i have like a special love for 1408 i love that one (laughs) it wrecks me i am fully it's so good it's so good All right, my friend, we are going to talk about individual characters who you feel should maybe have their own standout novel, like Hmm. Mr. Torrance. Mr. Torrance, Mr. Danaki. Who would that be for you? You and Neil stole what probably would have been my answer, which is the Manhattan Club. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that. I love the two times it occurs. I have my own like fan fiction story ideas for stuff set in that universe, too. I just love that club. I love the idea of that club. So that's not going to be my answer. Mm, There is a character in the Dark Tower who you've probably encountered once or twice already and didn't know it. Or you you knew it, but it just kind of blew by you. He only exists in graffiti, and we have no insight into him whatsoever. He has never been explained. He has never been explored. There are just occasional references to moments where he has tagged something. His name is Bango Skank. <gasps> and you'll just occasionally, they'll just like see like written on a wall in a bathroom or, you know, at the vacant lot or something like that. Bango Skank something, awaits the king. Bango Skank awaits the king or something like that. We have no idea who Bango Skank is. He's never been explored. I kind of wonder if he's like related to like the yellow card man or something like that. <gasps> like there's just something about him that is very, and he just pops up all the time, just in random moments. So I'd be very intrigued about that. That's maybe my answer for this question, but I have like a slight sub answer to this question. It's not a character I want explored more, but Insomnia is one of my Dark Horse favorite Stephen King books. I love that book deeply. And it's a Dark Tower book, too, for those that don't know. Very important Dark Tower book. But there has been something that we've, we've touched on later. We've touched on Fairy Tale. The Institute is also part of this, where... He's such a great character writer, and he's such an empathetic, humane, visionary character creator. And yet he's also been, like, preoccupied with people who are way younger than him lately. Like, the Institute's all about kids. Charlie is a 24 or 17-year-old. Later was about a teenager, too. And that's great. I love it. Fine. You know, I have some voice issues that I think anyone would have with the generation disconnect. But... Just like one reference in later where he calls like one of his classmates like a real foxy chick or something like that. It's like, this is set in fucking 2022. Uh, it doesn't ring true. But, uh, you know, the, the character work is still great. Like they still read as like real 
people. And they do in insomnia too, but he wrote insomnia as like a 50 something year old, maybe even like a late 40 year old. And they're about octogenarian characters. They're, they're in their eighties, I think, if I remember correctly. And I just really want him to write a book about being old. Like he kind of gets into it a little bit in Holly a little bit, but I would just love to see him revisit something like that with the wisdom that he has as a man who's now elderly and with the honesty that he has brought other periods of his life, other chapters of his life, what it's like to be like a young parent, what it's like to be poor, you know, all these things that he has experienced. I just really want him to like revisit whatever impetus made him write insomnia and talk about what it's like to be old and dying and watching your friends die and, you know, watching your body start to like not obey you the way it used to. That's kind of the thing I want next. I don't necessarily need him to revisit anything he's already written before. So it's not like I want him to rewrite Insomnia. And I feel like Insomnia, he does really well. He brings some real interesting insight to being old. But I just want him to like explore that more. I want to learn from him in a way that I haven't learned from him about what it's like to be that age yet, if that makes sense. Oh, that's beautiful. It does. I love that so much. I have not read Insomnia yet. I need to do the math mm. on the publishing times because I'm wondering, do I need to finish The Tower and then read Insomnia? Or at what book would Insomnia be possible, do you think? You just finished Wizard and Glass, right? Correct. So you're at kind of an interesting crossroads. Yeah. Because this is where The Tower really does have a split experience. Because like, as someone who read those books live, essentially... I did read all the other related books before Wolves of the Cala came out, because Wolves of the Cala just hadn't come out yet. Or I had already read them, because it took fucking years before each Dark Tower book came out. So, like, to me, that's kind of the organic way to do it. You read books one through four, then you read all the marginalia, and you read all the peripheral books, and then you read five and seven, and then you read Wind Through the Keyhole. Like, that just kind of makes sense to me, because that's how I did it. I've since reread The Dark Tower many times, just kind of as a series, as a seven book series or eight book series. And it works. It totally works. But I know all the things that I'm supposed to know. I kind of feel like after Wizard and Glass, you can just go straight into Wolves of the Cala. Like you're not, it's not like you'll be lost. It's not like you won't understand what's going on. He holds your hand enough that like they work as is. But it would be, enriched if you already knew Salem's Lot, It, Hearts in Atlantis, Everything's Eventual, Insomnia, and you don't need to read The Talisman, but you do need to read Black House. But they're both great. Black House is also one of my, like, if we get to our favorite Stephen King list within, like, five hours, as my answers get longer and longer and longer, <laughs> Black House is, like, one of my Dark Horse favorites. And Black House is very important to the tower. So yeah, it'll just be like enriched by having read all those. You don't have to, but there'll be like that extra feeling of joy. But then you also have to not read the Dark Tower books five through seven for a long fucking time. Right. And, you know, there is an interesting, I, I think in some ways what makes it work to do that is there is a slight voice change between books four and five. 
because so much time had elapsed between the two of them and so much had gone on in his life. Like the accident happened and like all these things happened. So he was a different writer by the time he was writing books five, six and seven. And he has different preoccupations and his voice just like works differently. His interest in like slang and stuff like that really amps up in world slang and stuff like that really amps up by book five. It does like lend itself to that pause. The main pain that you inflict upon yourself is that you just have to wait longer to know how the story ends. And that's also like sub sub answer. That's also why I kind of like recommend reading Win Through the Keyhole last because book seven will devastate you in so many ways, in so many satisfying ways, but you know, it's the end of the journey. It will devastate you. And there's something kind of nice about Win Through the Keyhole, just like getting to see them again. You know, if you find yourself devastated, Win Through the Keyhole is just like such, it's it's not a very urgent or stakes-filled chapter. It's just kind of like a story. And so there's something kind of nice to like just see your friends again. So yeah, that's probably not a very helpful answer. But like that's kind of my, that's my old man inclination because it should all be, it should be done the way I did it when I was a youth. <laughs> so I think it's kind of fun to like have to like go do the homework and then get to read the last sprint. But I also didn't have a choice, so that's why I feel that way. Okay, let's see. Where do I want to go now in our question? So I actually <laughs> want to take the liberty to ask you a brand new question. Ooh. It's never been asked before. Uh-oh. I can't hold back any longer. This was a suggestion from Neil McRobert, and I thought it was so <laughs> great. I'm like, this is happening. We're just going to put it in the question bank. Learning about some of your villains, of which we have some fantastic selections... This doesn't necessarily have to be a villain, but hmm. a Stephen King character who creates such a visceral reaction that you want to hurt them. Hmm. You would really like to cause insert bodily harm of your choice. Hmm. Who would that be for you? As all of my answers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you more than one. Oh, yeah. It's just impossible. Do it. Absolutely. Carrie's bullies. Arnie Cunningham's bullies. Yep. Arnie Cunningham. I would love to punch in the face after a certain <laughs> point. But I get it. I understand why he's like that way. Margaret White, you know, far be it for me to, to hit a woman. But like, I would probably enjoy punching Margaret White in the face. Yeah, I'm right behind you there. Mrs. Carmody from The Mist. Yeah. My real answer. Actually, also Charlie from Fairytale. I probably would like to punch in the face because I just didn't like that kid. Fucking perfect little kid. <laughs> but my real answer is a character I cannot tell you about. I'll tell you his name. But I can't spoil it for you yet. Okay. But when you get there, you'll know. Pimley Prentice in Dark Tower 7. I would like to just beat to a pulp. And then continue beating until the pulp is pulp. And then just like beat it down to like an atomic level. Yeah. I would like to beat Pimley Prentice. Prentice. You'll know why. One day, years from now, I will get an email from you and it'll be like, I get it. <laughs> I'm writing that one down. Pimley Prentice. Okay. Oh, and the adults in the in the institute. I remember really want like the the woman whose name I'm blanking on and her number two, who like basically just kill a bunch of kids. Like fuck those guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sigsby. Sigsby. I think. Sigsby. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mrs. Sigsby. Awful. 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 Agree with that one. For me, it's Big Jim Runny. Big yeah. Jim Runny. Yeah, and he'd hurt your fist. Oh, he would. But yeah, I would throw a rock. I would have stoned that okay. guy. Get some distance. He was the one I wanted at the grocery store. 
when they were heaving <laughs> rocks. I was like, why isn't Rennie there? Because yeah. I would have been ready with my bag of stones. Yeah. I feel he should have gone out that way. Nice and biblical. I would have loved it. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty satisfying end, though, if I remember correctly. Yeah. It was good. It was good. I just, yeah. by the time it happened, I was already boiling. Like, I yeah. was, could not, the rage could not be contained. I yeah. was fit to good be Good old tied. Dick Cheney. Yep. I just, <laughs> the, oh, I don't know. I was also reading that book during COVID, so I think I poured every ounce of everything I was feeling into mm -hmm. him. So he really did become larger than life yeah, for me. Yeah, understandable. I mean, remember back when we thought Dick Cheney was the worst a politician could get? I know. <laughs> the hole sinks uh -huh. further down. Uh -huh. Little did we know. Yeah, that's a very good answer, though. I wouldn't want to punch his son, though, because his son would swallow my fist and have sex with my dead body. Oh, my God. I'm going to pee myself on this <laughs> interview from laughter. Okay. It sounds like... Stephen King is constantly a part of your day-to-day. -day. Do you have a formal reread experience, or is it just like whatever you're feeling? Do you go through decades? What is your process for rereading? That's a good question. I've never really investigated it. Usually it's just kind of vibes. Like, what book do I feel like rereading? I mean, especially once I like became a writer, even as like a playwright, it was a little more targeted. It was like what kind of vibe am I going for? What kind of structure do I want some insight into? But then a lot of the times it'll just be like, what haven't I read in a while? I will then like era skip. I'll read like something from the 70s, something from the 90s, something from the 80s. And uh, yeah, and and I should say sadly too that there are a lot of books that I really haven't gotten to like reread in a long time, especially like the, what I think of as like the newer books, which really means like books from like the past 20 years. But like I haven't gotten to reread them as much. Sometimes by by choice, like I'll choose to read a, an older book because I just have like more nostalgia wrapped up in it anyway. And sometimes because like you know, like I, I don't think I've reread the Institute yet, and I and I enjoyed it. I liked the Institute a lot. It's just like I've had too much stuff to read since then. Billy Summers I haven't reread, which I I mostly like that book a lot. That's another one of those books that I, I think people are can be kind of lukewarm on, and I I really liked it. Me too. Yeah. So there's some like newer ones that I probably should try and reread just to like get more out of it. But uh, yeah, otherwise, like it is pretty chaotic. It's very vibesy. You actually just inspired me to do kind of a rogue question. Ooh. Yeah. Only because you mentioned Billy Summers. And I realized as you said that Billy Summers is the only thus far on my King journey is the only character I've been really attracted to. He's, he's a rugged dude. You got it. Like, <laughs> I was so into him now. Interesting. The Alice character, I was like, girl. <laughs> girl, I, I know that you're you're in a particular kind of way, but we got to mm. talk. Like, you got to seize this moment, mm. which is terrible. But that's how attracted to Billy I was. I get and it. And so my rogue question, we're just going to test the waters uh, on this question. I love it. Right? This is, you just inspired me. Is there anybody out there in your king journey hmm. who you've been attracted to hmm. and you were you were really into them and hmm. like reading about them well i mean i read it at a very foundational age so of course mm -hmm. i was in love with beverly yeah of course i was like that age when i read it and this doesn't quite answer the question but like i was i had a massive crush on Majin amick so when i used to watch sleepwalkers all the time on VHS. 
she was definitely part of the appeal. I don't even remember her character's name. It's a very nothing character. She's just a girl in peril. But oh my god, I was so in love with Major Namek. And yeah, I I'm tempted to say not tempted. I I'm going to say <laughs> Susan, lovely girl at the window, because I read Wizard and Glass. I think the second time I read it, which was the time that it really clicked for me. I read it when it first came out, which it was like, I think like 94, 95 or something like that. So I was like 13, 14 or something like that. I liked it. I kind of put up with the book when I read it the first time. It was not my favorite at the time. But then when I reread it, I I think the first time I reread it, I was in college and I was in a relationship. Everyone has that like first, it wasn't my first relationship by a long shot like I'd been in several serious relationships by that point but it was kind of the first relationship where it was like unhealthy on my part like I was just deeply in love with this person to like an unhealthy degree like I'd never felt this sort of like obsession with another human being before like I was addicted to this person and this was at like the height of when things were working when like the height of the bliss of that relationship was when I was rereading Wizard and Glass. And that's when Wizard and Glass like became one of my like top five favorite novels because he captured that feeling of I will burn the rest of my life down for this person. No questions asked. I will do it in a heartbeat. And so when I think of those feelings, I think of Susan, even though, and you know, I at the time I was probably putting this person's face on her too. And like, I don't think I still do that, but like, I can still remember what it was like to feel something that intense, the way like only like a 20 something can feel something. And then when that relationship fell apart, years long hangover and, and heartbreak that that gave. And as as you know, now, like Wizard and Glass does not end well. No. And changes that character foundationally, fundamentally. So like, yeah, when I think of that love, I think of Susan that's not quite attracted but it is like those intense fucking feelings for <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure there are other characters i'd have a fling with but i, I didn't i didn't write them down in time so <laughs> beautiful thank you for participating i love that question that's a great i hope that's a new question right it might have to be my rogue wave there but yeah i've noticed and i don't know what this means but like <laughs> it's really getting pavlovian with billy summers like i get it i totally get it billy's mentioned and i'm like oh my god <laughs> I don't know why. I'm... You can assassinate me. <laughs> right? I mean, let's hang out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I've heard all of this beautiful content about Dark Towers. So we've hmm. come to one of my favorite questions, which is just this open, open, raw reaction question. Hmm. What are your thoughts on the Dark Tower? I love the Dark Tower so much. I've also loved listening to episodes of this show where you ask that to other people who have all read all of the Dark Tower and just like watching them squirm, trying to figure out how to like talk about it without <laughs> spoiling it for you. They're so kind. Now I'm in that position. Uh, yeah, it's it's like a nice like little tradition now. Of, like, how do we not? <laughs> how do we talk about this book without like just talking about where the book goes? I know. Is it like you'll definitely I'm sure you can like presume already, but like you'll know viscerally after you finish your journey with it, why it's so hard not to talk about the ending and like not just like it's it's not like there is like an ending but it's also like the events leading up to the ending that like are you just like want to talk about i absolutely adore it i think it is 
such a fleshy, organic growth that might sound unappealing, that might sound unattractive, but like I mean it in a way like there's something there's something about King's writing process in general that that is kind of like this. You know, he famously says he does an outline. And once you like once you start actually writing books, you realize that there's an element of bullshit to that answer, because even if you don't outline, you still write a second draft. So your first draft is just your outline. It's, it's so easy to think like, oh, my God, Stephen King just like doesn't know where his book is going. And like, yes, but then he also like edits it. So it's not like we're getting like this raw thing that just like came out of somebody. But there, it does lead to certain things that you could say dramaturgically, like don't make as much sense or aren't like set up punchline the way like a structured, a heavily structured thing might be. And the best of Stephen King is both. You get that organic sense of something developing and like a writer having fun and you get the structure, like a disciplined structure on top of it. With The Dark Tower, you get that almost in macro because, and Neil has discussed this in an interesting way too that I think is very accurate. Stephen King's not a world builder. He's a world creator, but he's not Tolkien. He's not like writing the language system and writing the history of this place and its mythology. And there's a map like you try and picture Midworld and it makes no sense whatsoever because that wasn't important. That wasn't what King wanted to do. Like, that's not what he cared about. He wanted to have these characters experience weird, crazy shit that like pops up. And maybe it wasn't well set up in like three books ago the way it would be if like this whole thing had been planned out. So you get that feeling of organic growth through the course of these books in such a such an interesting, sloppy way. The sloppiness of The Dark Tower kind of keeps it out of the echelons of like Wheel of Time and and you know, even Song of Ice and Fire, if that ever ends, Tolkien and stuff like that. Like those are clearly mapped and like thought out structured worlds and so they work as an epic journey in what you know pacing issues notwithstanding to some of those series but the dark tower work is individual stories that like just start like it's like you're in a hallway with a flashlight and you're just like discovering more about this world that maybe doesn't even hold together as a cohesive unit and that's what makes it so interesting and so exciting and there like there are elements that then justify that in the later books, in, in books five, six, and seven, because it gets increasingly meta, which I hope is not spoiling anything for you. But I like even by book four, like we've already got Wizard of Oz and we've got The Stand. Like we've, it's already pretty meta. That increases a hundredfold in the later books. And so it starts becoming a tale about storytelling to the point where, and again, we can't talk about the ending, but the act of reading actually becomes participatory to this journey. That almost sounds obvious to say, because of course you're reading this story, so of course. But you start to realize that you reading this book, almost in like a never-ending story sort of way, where like, uh, you know, the reader is almost like influencing it in an interesting way. Something like that happens that I will pull away from now because I don't want to put that in your head. You should experience it not thinking about that, if that's possible. But so like, not only does that become just for lack of a better term, justification for that sloppiness of the tale as a whole, it becomes part of the appeal of it. And like, so you almost get to experience with Stephen King, 
as he's writing these books and especially the last three when like he's writing it after his near-death experience when he's like oh i need to fucking finish this thing like if i'm gonna finish this thing i should do it because i almost fucking died <laughs> so you like you get to experience that with him of like holy shit we're doing this we're, we're finishing the dark tower all right like this is happening and so that makes it so delightful and so unique i can't think of another series that works being this sloppy that works not having a map that works having each segment feel almost like a different genre at times and so yeah i'm an unambiguous dark tower fan i do agree with what dan caffrey said where like i don't need everything to tie into it i feel like that's kind of happening because it's neat and like neat in a fun way not neat in a neat way but it, you know it Everything's about IP right now, and even Stephen King himself can't not think about things like that. I always love the overlap in King's works anyway, even even as like a 10-year-old being like, oh my god, Cujo in the dead zone, or like, that's Frank Dodd, they're, they're, oh my god, they're, like these books are <laughs> talking to each other. Anytime anyone mentions Joe Cambo was killed by his dog during that hot summer of 1981, like I fucking love that. I love when that happens. <laughs> But, like, I don't need everything to be, there's a rose there, or like, oh, the, the Crimson King is involved. Or like, that, I can take or leave. I don't hate it, but I don't need it. But there is some, like, I think you will, especially you as an academic, or I shouldn't slander you like that, as someone with an academic background, <laughs> I think you'll especially appreciate how the flaws of the Dark Tower start really becoming what makes it so delightful and unique and what will make you cry just thinking of these characters after a certain point, because they start to mean so much more after you've gone through this with them. Yeah, I I think it's just such a weird and wonderful trip, and I'm so glad it was finished. And I'm so glad it was finished the way it is. The, I mean, the ending is perfect. It is the perfect ending. It's the ending I was hoping it would have, and it did have. It did happen. And there are even, there are things about it that I hate and not in like a, oh, I hate that that happened to that character that I cared about or something like that. But then I'm like, oh, why'd you like that? You could have done that so much more interesting. But the way it is constructed, my response as a reader actually like kind of informs why it had to happen that way. Like there are deliberate anti-climaxes in some of the later final installments of this book where you'll just be like, oh, that was that was the thing we were building to? Huh. But then, like, that's the point. That's the whole point of it. And it works just so well, maybe months after the fact when you're thinking about it. But, like, it's that sort of story that withstands that sort of scrutiny that you just, like, think about and analyze. So I love it. Oh, that moves <laughs> me so much. I'm just... Oh, I love this question, and I love hearing... It's such an emotional, but yet everybody's so articulate about it. Mm. But it's just, God, I can't wait to finish. I can't wait to resume my journey. Yeah. Wizard and Glass wrecked me for a couple months, so I yeah. just needed to gather myself and recover. But it's so special. It really is. When I talk to people and ask them about it. Yeah. I even like the movie. I mean, the movie is a piece of shit. It's terrible. <laughs> it's a horrible movie. Like, objectively, it just does not work. But there was just something about seeing, I almost felt like I was just like looking at fan art, which I've done. I will look at fan art of the Dark Tower because I'm like, how does someone else envision Roland? How did someone else envision Merlin or uh, Oi or Jake or whoever? And so that movie just like felt like someone else doing a version of the Dark Tower. And I was like, great. I'm seeing the speaking ring. 
I'm seeing Midworld a little bit. Like, this movie sucks, but I fucking love it. I love seeing <laughs> Jake. I love seeing these characters. So, yeah, it is it is a very special thing. I love costumes. <laughs> if a movie is trash, I'm like, you know, those costumes. Yeah. <laughs> Aesthetics will take me very far. Totally. <laughs> and, hey, Marshall McLuhan would, would argue that that is part of the value of the story anyway. So, like, you know, the medium is the message. You were totally dead right about those echoing moments because I just reread it this summer. Mm. And I forgot that Patrick Hoxtetter drives Christine to yeah. pick up. Could not contain the joy. Yep. Yep. Even the movie Cat's Eye. I remember like the little beginning of Cat's Eye when a St. Bernard chases the cat away. And then a 1958 red Plymouth Fury almost hits the dog. And the bumper sticker says like, beware my wrath. I am Christine, which makes no sense. Why would Christine have that bumper sticker? But like, just as like a fan of the material, I was like, yeah. Christine's here too. Oh my God. All our friends are here. I just love it. I'm with you. Any little tiny crust of bread is joyful. Exactly. We are going to veer into Stephen King endings. Mm. I have spoken with a lot of constant readers and I think everybody's pretty unanimous that it's all about the journey, but Sometimes, after a long journey, like a thousand pager, <laughs> it's not a satisfying ending. And so I wanted mm. to ask, is there an ending that you feel kind of soured the experience as a whole? Or is that kind of, you don't put your focus on where it ends? I am one of those people who actually like defends Stephen King's endings a lot of the time. Like I think even in the case of one I just sort of alluded to that feels like an anticlimax, I get it. Like I and I like it. There there have actually been very few Stephen King stories that I haven't felt like the ending was the ending it should have had. So like that canard about like, you know, they even make fun of it in it chapter two, which in itself was a shitty ending because I fucking hated <laughs> that movie. Yeah. You know, they have that running joke of like his endings suck. And like I, I have never felt that way. Like I, I've loved almost all of his endings. There, are, there are a few short stories that don't have good endings, or not. They just have like you know, a short story should kind of be like a a joke. Like it, it should be leading up to some sort of punchline, or you know, even if it's just like open ended, it should still be like leading up to something. And there are some that just kind of lead up to something where you're like, oh, uh, all right, but it's a short story. Like it costs you nothing. Like yeah. it's fine. And Mr. Harrigan's phone is actually one of those. And like, I'm surprised that they made a movie of it. Cause I was, I read that and I was like, this was fine, but like, that's, that's where we were going. Okay. Great. Like, you know, it just kind of felt very <laughs> uneventful. I do agree that the ending of under the dome feels arbitrary. I still like it. I like the idea of it. It's just not well set up, but I, I like it, but yeah, it, it doesn't work like structurally. I prefer the ending of the movie of Dr. Sleep to the book. Yeah. There is just something about still having the Overlook there that made it feel like a sequel to The Shining. And just having Danny on, like, you know, the Colorado mountainside and Jack Torrance's ghost pushes somebody off a cliff. I was like, eh, all right. Yeah, th that this didn't have to be Danny and Jack Torrance for any of that to happen. So, like, I didn't hate it, but, like, I did prefer the movie's compromise of those two visions of, of the story. I also didn't love the Abra and Danny being related revelation. I was like, didn't need that. Didn't need that at all. Didn't Agree. hate it. Didn't need it. There is something 
problematic to me about the ending of Bag of Bones. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, you didn't have to do that to Sarah. Sarah had been done real dirty. Yeah. Uh, and so to, like, have her just actually be the villain felt very unfair. And, like, we have to, like, destroy her bones. This woman who horrible things had happened to, like, just felt very cruel. Like, unnecessarily mean to to that story. But, again, it didn't, like, ruin the book for me. I was just like, ah, that's that's an unresolved note to that story that I don't love. So I don't revisit that story as much as I could. Because there's a lot in the beginning that I love about that book. And I, the last one I'll, I'll mention is maybe The Outsider, which, again, I didn't hate it. But there is an interesting thing that he does that I think he does a little too easily sometimes. A few that I can't mention because they are spoilers for other things you're going to read. Okay. Um, so apologies for acknowledging that this happens even in those. But it ha- it's happened in things you've read already, too, where, like, he sets up a big bad and then he gets them sick so they are weakened for the final fight Mm, yeah that happens in the regulators it happens in desperation and it kind of works in those because like the idea is that tack like destroys the the human host that he's in but it, it you know so that time it worked but then it happens in the outsider you know the other b story cop who's kind of like decomposing in a way it happens to the true not they get sick and like so they're kind of weak as they go into this final confrontation and it happens a couple of other things that i won't mention but it happens enough that like when it does happen i'm like "Eh, okay (laughs) this is the this is the formula that we're getting to this climax and fine i'm not mad about it but like it's it does feel like it steps on the stakes a little bit and in a way like rennie jr in under the dome like has kind of a similar thing like just watching him disassemble makes him compelling in under the dome i think it works because i think he's just like so dangerous in his disassembling but you'll just notice that pattern again and again and again and it works which is interesting analytically but i think narratively can be sometimes underwhelming i love that in the spotlight i don't know Mm. if i had it in my mind's eye but now i do the inverse is that you'll here i'll I'll say this so you'll never not notice it uh (laughs) when king wants you to like a hero or a group of heroes he will have them dance he will have them (gasps) sing and dance usually in like a kitchen uh and it'll just be like this moan of like unrestrained joy and they'll dance together (laughs) that's his way of being like you like these people like you're gonna like these people oh my god yeah happens all the time yes all the time Oh my gosh, there's so much dancing in uh-huh. 11 mm-hmm. Oh yeah. In Life of Chuck, big old mm-hmm. dance number. Mm-hmm. There's so, oh my God. You're going to have a dance scene in uh, Wolves of the Kala when you get to it. <gasps> yeah. Not much of a spoiler, but. Okay. Yeah. That is so helpful. This is priceless. <laughs> priceless. I do want to ask about the ladies. The ladies. The ladies. Do you have... Dear sir, good sir, a favorite or favorites, hmm. Stephen King, some XX chromosomes. Who's your favorite female? Oh, you know it'll be plural. I don't have any <laughs> singular answer to any of these. I love it. I do. I do. I mean, there's Carrie. I think Carrie is a phenomenal character. I think Margaret White is a phenomenal character. I mean, yes, they are stock. They are, there is a thinness to them in some ways or not even a thinness but like there's a there's a shorthand to a lot of them in ways that 
you know, could have been fleshed out in maybe a longer book or a more mature book. But I think there's also a deep empathy for them that is really engaging. I think Sue Snell is fucking fantastic. I love her so much. My heart breaks for her. Coach Harginson. Am I saying her name right? I don't think I've said that out loud in a very long time. No, because I think that's uh, her bully's last name. I'm forgetting the coach's last name, but I I think she's great. Desjardin? Desjardin, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Desjardins. Desjardins. Uh, uh, Desjardins. <laughs> I think she's very poignant. And that's just the first book. I know you're a big Susanna fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dark Tower. I agree. I love her. I love all of her personalities. Even though, yes, I am often uncomfortable when he writes in uh, an African-American sort of patois. <laughs> it's better than Mr. Mercedes, at least. Yeah. But yeah, that doesn't always work for me. Dolores Claiborne is incredible. There, uh, I love Bobby Anderson in from <gasps> the Tom. Yeah, Andrews. she was so cool. She's great, and she's so mature, and she's yeah. so modern. And I like her arc. Like I like, you know, the Tom Anders has a lot of issues as a book, <laughs> but I love it. I, that's another one of those that I'll defend. I think it's a great fucking pasta against the wall sort of book <laughs> and especially if you're a writer or a creator or or anything like that who can't relate to wanting a, a a thought machine to like type out your your thoughts and stuff like that and and that sort of ambition and that sort of desperation and that sort of like addiction to when it starts happening that's such a great character her sister sucks her sister is not a well-written character <laughs> but like i love bobby I love Rose Daniels, even though, again, there's like some, you know, some things that don't entirely work about her from like a feminist perspective. But but also it feels very real. And like there are plenty of real people who like don't work from a feminist perspective like that works. I love Charlie McGee. I think Charlie McGee is a great character. And that's a fascinating book because it's so clearly about a father realizing his daughter is going to like become a sexual creature. There's father panic in that book that makes Charlie such an interesting character. I know she was very young also, which, you know, is table that discussion for another time. But like, I get it. I get why he was writing that book when his children were that age and just like starting to think of those anxieties. But maybe my favorite, I'm leading up to my favorites, I think. I love the main character in a short story, Home Delivery, blanking on her name, but she's very interesting. She starts very meek. It's a zombie apocalypse, and she realizes she's going to have to give birth to her baby during the zombie apocalypse. And her story is also very poignant and empowering by the end. But I think my two favorites, favorite favorites, I love Stella Flanders in The Reach. I love that story. And I don't think she's a good... I, I, don't, I don't know if she's necessarily like a good female character because her her being female is kind of incidental she's just like a beautiful character she's a beautiful human character who just happens to be an old woman but i fucking love that story but i think the one character who has to be a woman who is a great woman character is mrs todd from mrs todd's shortcut i fucking love her <laughs> she's great like god bless you and your shortcuts hell yeah <laughs> go find your other dimension I fucking love her. She's an absolute delight. <laughs> Mrs. Todd Shortcut and The Reach are my two favorites. What? I am obsessed. No shit. Oh, I love that. I wasn't sure if you'd read Skeleton Crew yet. Oh, I, oh my God. Yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> and 
when I got to those, I remember writing in my notebook, I was like, goat, greatest of all time, question mark? Yeah. Blown away. And then oh, yeah. the reach made me oh. very emotional. It's oh. so beautiful. So oh. beautiful. I'm so glad you know. You know. Oh, that's one of those stories that like anyone who scoffs at Stephen King, you just like slap him in the face with. You know, yes. like, read the fucking reach. <laughs> yeah. Read the last rung on the ladder. Read these short stories, you jerk. Right? You plebeian. Yeah, exactly. Get out of here. Oh, I'm so glad. You know the power. Great choices. Great females. And like Mrs. Todd, I think, has to be a woman. Like that's part of her story is oh, like yeah? being patronized. And people looking at her as like frivolous and like, no, she fucking does it. She finds the shortcut to end <laughs> all shortcuts. And it's fucking awesome. Oh, that story's so cool. <laughs> I think about Mrs. Todd and I'm like, dang, it's just so cool. It's ice yeah. cold cool. Right. With her little go devil. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And maybe related to from a Buick 8. I don't know. It's never really been ex explored, but dude, I kind of look at them as. <gasps> I never mean that connection. Yeah. I don't know why, but I love it. That's amazing. It just makes sense to me. It does. <laughs> oh my God. If they were in the same. <laughs> if you were going to get stuck in a fictional king setting, mm. it doesn't have to be forever. <laughs> Just a visit. Okay. That's nice. That's good to know. Right? You could have a nice little sojourn. You can have a three monther if you need to write your new book. Mm. You could go the spooky route and hang out in the Overlook. Or you can go the happy route and go to Joyland <laughs> for the summer. Where would blow your dress up, Nat? Mm, uh, survivor type, I think. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I would love to be stranded on an island with heroin, eating myself. <laughs> piece by piece. One spooky would be... Have you read Nightmares and Dreamscapes yet? I have not. That one I haven't. It's an interesting collection. I love it. But also, like... I was a preteen when I read it. So like, it was just like, it. I was the right audience for, you know, it's a weird, it's even weirder than Skeleton Crew. It's such a weird collection of stories and not stories like essays and poems and all this shit. There's a screenplay in it, but I love it. I love it. And there's one short story. There's several stories. One of the reasons why it's like looked down upon as a collection a little bit, I think is there are several stories that all have the same premise of like couple driving gets lost in small town that does weird things. But one of those stories in it is, you know, they've got a hell of a band and it's based on a, oh, the name has flown out of my head of who does this song. There's a, there's a song called, if there's a rock and roll heaven, <laughs> then if life is just a one night stand, if there's a rock and roll heaven, then you know, they've got a hell of a band uh, is the way it goes. And so the story's called, they've got a hell of a band. And this couple drives into rock and roll heaven, this like uh, strange small town, and they discover that it's populated by all the dead musicians in rock and roll history. So like Jimi Hendrix is there, Elvis is there, and Buddy Holly is there, and oh my God, Sam Cooke is over there, and like Janis Joplin is over there. And it winds up becoming a scary story, like it winds up becoming horrible for them. But I am a massive, we haven't even gotten into this part of my makeup, but like I'm a musician. I'm a songwriter and I'm a massive classic rock snob and obsessive. And I mean, from the 50s through the like 70s. Nice. Huge Buddy Holly fan, huge Sam Cooke fan, huge Jimi Hendrix, just all of them. I was raised by a baby boomer who just like brainwashed me in baby boomer supremacy. And I, for the music scene, I'm there. I'm 100% there. 
And so like getting to spend time in that town would be fucking great. Oh my <laughs> God, I would love that. I get to hang out with John Lennon for a little while. I get to hang out with Janice, Jimmy, Jim Morrison. I'd listen to some of his poetry. Who gives a shit? Like, it would just be so great, provided I don't have the same ending because they are not allowed to leave. And that would not be fun. So for a less spooky answer, I know you'll like this because I know you love this book. I love this book too. This was my answer before I knew you loved this book. But I spent some time at Big Pink. Fucking, yes! That would be amazing. Oh my God, hear the seashells like whispering underneath and have some sunsets and artistic inspiration and just be warm. Oh, oh, I love, I love Duma Key. There are some things about Duma Key's ending that I don't love, but I love Duma Key. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, massive. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, I have a full-on visceral reaction. I love Duma Key so much. It's so fucking good. I wish, I love, and I love that the ending doesn't pull punches. I love that one of his daughters dies. Oh, yeah. But, like, I feel like we don't feel the loss of her. Like, I just wanted to be devastated by her death a little bit more. It just happens off screen. Yeah. And then, like, we move into the climax really fast. There's just something about that. Like, I wanted it to be even more brutal. I love how brutal it is. But I just wanted to, like, twist the knife a little bit more. Oh, I'm into it. I love that, too. Yeah. Feel the pain. And a great audiobook. John Slattery does the audiobook. Amazing. Great performance. Agree. Couldn't agree more. Oh, my God. That made me so happy now. Just, <laughs> yeah. Big Pink didn't Dolly. I think in the novel, Dolly stayed there in Big yeah, Pink. Yeah, yeah. And, like, oh, my yeah. God. So good. And it's another classic rock reference, too, because that's where Bob Dylan and the band recorded. There you go. Coming home from Big Pink and Doom mm. Key, sadly, when you got home, what would be the Stephen King TV adaptation or film you would watch? Mm. What are your favorites? <laughs> Storm of the Century. Yeah. Is very high on that list, as are The Stand and It, the TV movies. I shall not speak of the new The Stand, because I'm in polite company. I love the first episode. That was bumpy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Gerald's Game, impeccable. Carrie, impeccable. Dark Half, impeccable. Dolores Claiborne, great. Shawshank, love it. Apt Pupil, love it. Green Mile, love it. Salem's Lot, love it. 1408, love it. Christine, love it. It might be a better version of that story than the book, because the book is a little soggy. In points, which I think he's even acknowledged, does not need to shift narrative perspective the way it does. Like, it just doesn't quite work. Here are my two main answers. One is going to be controversial. It's not actually my favorite. I just want to talk about it. The other one is is more my favorite. The Needful Things movie, but the cable edit of the Needful Things movie, which has like 30 additional minutes. Wow. Uh, because when they aired it on TBS, I think it was. It didn't fit well, and so they decided to actually add material to it to have it fit in the schedule when it was scheduled. So there's additional material for the cable edit, and it's since, like, as of a month ago, finally been released on Blu-ray. But I've had it on VHS for the long, like, taped off of cable. It's so good. The additional material works so fucking well. But the other movie that is not my favorite, but I will defend it, is The Shining. Because I maintain that it is one of the most faithful adaptations of a Stephen King novel. Even though it takes liberties, even though it adds different ingredients, even though things occur differently, I think it is a an adaptation that is true to the spirit of the book in a way that is 
as accurate as you could ever want an adaptation to be. King himself and other people have pointed out that, like, Jack Torrance is crazy from the beginning in the movie. And, like, that's you missed the whole arc of Jack Torrance in the book. Jack Nicholson just, like, seems, like, unhinged from the get-go. And they forget that the first line of that fucking book is Jack Torrance thought, officious little prick. The first introduction to Jack Torrance is that he is a mean, petty, piece-of-shit person. And yes, we get more nuance with him than we do with Jack Nicholson. He becomes... There's a pathos to him that maybe is not there in the movie. But the real intent of that story is to terrify. It's Wendy and Danny who are really the people whose emotions we should be the most concerned about. They're the victims of Jack Torrance and the Overlook. And so I think the moment when Jack Nicholson freaks out and he's like, I had this dream where I killed you and like, I don't want to do that. I find that to have pathos. I feel like I get the flavors of the humanized Jack Torrance that the book gives us in that movie. But I think, sure, you miss the wasps, but you get the hedge maze. And I feel like those on a symbological level are equally as valuable to that story and like are still in world of that story. So I think the whole point of adaptation is to try and tell the same story in a different medium, using a different language. You have to use a different language. You have to use the language of visuals. And seeing Jack Nicholson's unhinged smile straight from the get-go in that interview, that tells me visually what I'm being told semiotically through the inner monologue that we get through the book. I find that they're doing the same thing. So I don't find it actually to be like an unaccurate depiction of who Jack Torrance is. It's just we're being told it in a different language. So I think that's the reason why, like, I have some love for the miniseries, The Shining. I fucking love Steven Weber so much. I've oh, he's always great. been a fan of his. He's great. And Rebecca DeMornay is an okay uh, Wendy. We won't talk about Cortland Mead as Danny Torrance. It's not his fault. He was a kid. Yeah. But there's a reason why that movie isn't scary the way the Kubrick movie is. And it's because it's actually like telling a different story. It's missing all the horror of the book that I think Kubrick actually got more authentically and more accurately. So, yeah, long story short, I will say justice for the Kubrick Shining as a Stephen King story specifically. I think it does great justice to that novel. Oh, really insightful. Because I don't know if it's been presented that way before, because it yeah. works. It it actually works. Yeah. The novel wants us to know that he is unhinged. It wants us to know that he is going to fail, that he is a bad person. And so we're just told that visually right away. And great. It's very economical uh, stage setting. I reread it this summer, and it was the second time. And I, this second time, realized, oh, dang, it's doom on page one. Yeah. Page one. Page one, the first line. I didn't get that in the first read through. Right. Yeah, I think that's accurate, actually. I think I should marry the two more often. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Stephen King couple, friendship, team, romance? Obviously, the quartet is a big one. I love them. I love the Losers Club, obviously. I love the repertory cast of Desperation and Regulators. That's great fun. As individual characters, they're they, they hit or miss. 
Neil stole my answer of Jack and Wolf <laughs> from the Talisman. So I'm not going to say that, but I love them too. I actually love the team of Salem's Lot, even though they're also not his best characters. There is something very stock about those characters in Salem's Lot, but I do love them like coming together and failing one by one. But I think my real answer has got to be the missionaries in the stand. <gasps> nice. Glenn, Ralph, Stu, Larry, and Kojak. I am a sucker for a suicide mission. And like a noble suicide mission that just gets me in a narrative place that's so real and like makes me think how I would feel if I was doing it. And like, what would I do? Do I have the bravery to go on a doomed mission like that? So their trek to Las Vegas, I love so much. You know, we, we've already talked about how I love the uh, TV movie, too. But the soundtrack of that TV movie is a CD that I've had in rotation since it aired. W.G. Snuffy Walden is the uh, uh, composer, <laughs> also known for the theme song to Roseanne. And thing. like he's just got this like twangy steel guitar. He's so maybe this is the Arizona in me, too. Yeah, because it's just so fucking cowboy. It's so Western feeling. And the theme, the musical theme of them, like just walking to their death, like just walking into nowhere because they know that's what they're supposed to do. The musical theme that accompanies that, I listen to all the time. It's like such an emotive bit of music. And yeah, so I I love that group. Great choice. I've actually never heard that answer before. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> oh, very moving. That whole group. One will fall, by the way. Oh, the <gasps> way he falls. And then what that means is that he's actually the one survivor because of it. And he was the hero. He was supposed to be the hero the whole time. Mm. Mm. And Kojak saves him. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I know that we mentioned the bumpiness of the series, but what did you think of Franny's coda? I didn't need it. I felt very little about it. I was interested in it because he wrote it. And yeah. so, like, obviously it was very, it had my full attention. I didn't look down on it. I was like, okay, I can see why you wanted to have this also said. But I just, I so passionately disliked everything leading up to that. Talk about inaccurate adaptations. The way it depicted Las Vegas, I thought was like such a slap in the face to the point of the book. The whole point that it's supposed to be a fascist state, not a fucking orgy. Like the whole point is that it's supposed to be cops and law and order people. That's why they're drawn to the devil. That was such a great subversion. It's Colorado that's messy and sloppy because it's democracy. And it's these people who are just trying to fucking figure out how to have this polyphonic sort of community of different people. The trains run on time in Las Vegas. That's the point. And for it to just be like this overacted bacchanal just made me so sad that by the time we got to Franny and Stu again, I was like, okay, fine, whatever. That was it. Neat. And I didn't love him as Flag. Also, like, there was just a charisma that was missing for all his, like, TV movie hamminess. I thought Jamie Sheridan, like, nailed Flag. Like, yeah, he's a man with a mullet and a smile and dimples. Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I was. I just, I guess my answer is not much. Like, I just don't think much about it. It was fine. Yeah. It was pretty. How did you feel? So, I actually... This is my, my little shame corner. I know exactly what happens in the stand. I just 
didn't finish reading it. Oh, well, sorry. I spoiled some things. No, no. <laughs> I had seen the miniseries before. Oh, okay. So, yeah. If you saw the miniseries, you know. I knew all the things. But I, I think it was 2015. I don't know what happened. But I got to Mother Abigail's place. Mm. And then my life, I don't know. And I was like, oh, God, I never finished the stand. What the hell? It's kind of like this glaring, uh-oh, <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but I have read articles on the character like i know mm. everything you're saying yeah and i can't wait to finish i'll do a big old reread in time but i don't exactly know i just know that it drops off for franny and a lot of people were upset about that but i don't exactly know <laughs> yeah i mean the, the ending that he originally wrote even not withstanding the additional ending that the unexpurgated version tacks on the ending is already just great. Like it ends with hope. It ends with like a baby being born that survives. Yeah. Like that's all you need. I'm, the whole point of the stand is it's about, besides just being like a Lord of the Rings retelling, it's about the difficulty of society and having to reestablish society. And, and is it even worth doing? Is society even worth it? And so it needs to kind of end with that feeling of, yes, it is because now we need to have a world for this new life. And like this baby is why we survived. So it's very poignant. Oh. Yeah. And I know I watched it. I can barely even remember what happens in the new <laughs> version. Like I'm remembering images and the well and like her being injured and stuff like that. And it's like a temptation sort of thing. And I was just like, yeah, all right. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess in a way it kind of also felt like fan fiction. It was like, yeah, right. okay. Oh, I like that. Ooh, the yeah. double F fan fiction. Not that there's anything wrong with fan fiction. It just like didn't. It didn't feel like canonical to me. I love fan fiction too. Yeah, it's, fan fiction's amazing. From academia, it's always like hissing in the background, right? All those highfalutins. Yeah, you know, that's how we got Merry Wives of Windsor. There you go. Precious Shakespeare wrote fan fiction of himself. He's too cool for school, that Shakespeare. <laughs> okay, just a couple more. Just like two or three more. I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Oh no, you don't have to be. <laughs> All right. Which Stephen King title do you recommend to non-King readers when we occasionally have to speak to them? <laughs> mm. I would recommend Different Seasons. I would recommend Misery. I would recommend 112263. Depending on their age, I would recommend Hearts in Atlantis, which is a very underappreciated book. I fucking love Hearts in Atlantis so much. I love so it much. too. Beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. I know younger generations probably are not as sympathetic to the baby boomers, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I can't divorce myself from having been raised by a baby boomer and certainly have my issues with them as a voting block. But like I, <laughs> the iconography, like actually still means something to me as well. So I don't know what it's like to not have that connection to that era, but I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful work of literature. So I would recommend all of those books, depending on what they're looking for, but also like if they just want like a scary book, they want to know what makes Stephen King Stephen King's probably Pet Cemetery or The Shining or Salem's Lot, I think. Good choices. Yeah. Solid. Yeah. Two or three more. Maybe. Yeah, just two. <laughs> so I want, well, no, I'll ask this question first. Favorite Stephen King animal or pet or creature? Oi, Kojak, Mr. Jingles. Oh, yay. I love Mr. Jingles. So I hope great. he's still out there. He is. He is. I know it. Yeah, he's got to be. Mm -hmm. I feel weird saying this about Wolf because I, I feel like that is patronizing in a way. But like, there's something animalistic to Wolf. 
and he's just a great character from the talisman and here's one that might not have been referenced yet rat from if it bleeds <gasps> i fucking love that little guy yeah yeah that guy was great i loved that story Real little spooky bastard <laughs> love rat he was great <laughs> that novella oh i loved it it was great yeah that, that was a collection that like i read and i didn't I didn't dislike it, but I didn't think much of it after I read it. And then I went back and read it. And I was like, oh, my God, I loved all of these stories. Yeah, same. Yeah. Good choice. Very cool. A lot of these, Nat, I have never heard before. Well, Neil stole so many of mine that I had to be like, (laughs) all right, all right, let's really flex some muscles here. Yeah, there's a gun show happening, (laughs) Nat. It's very impressive. I even feel that our listeners are going to have to research. Good, good. All right, so you did mention that you possessed a few signed Stephen King titles. I need to, A, vicariously live through you in this moment and know which ones you have signed. I wish I could reach them. They're up so high right now. And that experience, because when you Hmm. got this amazing opportunity to be in the same room with Steve, did you pack your backpack full or like walk me through how this happened? No, I chose one specific book. I did, yeah. And then he actually gave us other ones. Okay. Like, he brought a bunch of them. <gasps> so I have, you know, if I ever really need to pay rent one day, <laughs> this is my emergency. Hopefully I never get there. But I have a signed copy of Dark Tower 7. I have a signed copy of Everything's Eventual. I had a signed copy of Wolves of the Cala, but I gave it to an ex-girlfriend during a very difficult breakup, and I was like, I want you to have this because like she was also getting into the dark tower and she tore it up in front of me. So I don't have that anymore. It was not a good breakup. And I just died. (laughs) I hope it was cathartic for her because it was a, it was an an expensive display, but she was going through a rough time. She was definitely going through a rough time. All right. But yeah, that was, (laughs) that breakup cemented some decisions that it was the right thing to do as well. Yeah. But the book that I brought to Steve to sign was my mass market, well-loved, read like probably 10 times by that point, a copy of Dance Macabre, which was my Bible when I was a kid. Like I read that book cover to cover over and over again. That book was my reading list. That book was my exegesis. That book was my university course in storytelling in horror as a philosophy and horror as a genre and again like this is one of the other reasons why like i'm so brainwashed as like a baby boomer (laughs) sort of acolyte too because it's very baby boomer centric you know just hearing the horror of sputnik being launched the space race like all those things were it's not his autobiographical nonfiction. that's obviously on writing but like he talks about these things a lot and what it was like growing up with tv like becoming a, a medium and his love of horror as literature and then the movies and stuff like that. Like that book, I proselytized that book. I would wave that book to other people and quote from that book as like a 12 year old. So that's the book that I gave. And even when I brought it to him, he was like, oh, nobody ever asked me to sign this book. Uh, so that's the book that he, he personalized to me. I mean, it's not a, it's like all the best to Nat. Yeah, that was the book that I was like, Because, you know, I looked at all of them. I was like, which, you know, there are plenty of other novels that mean a great deal to me. But I was like, that's the book I have to have him sign to me. Because that's the book that kind of made me a writer 
and an unapologetic horror writer at that. I'm so happy you have these things. <laughs> <laughs> I know in my soul that Mr. King is just a genuinely kind man. And having mm. met him, do you can you concur that that's... Yeah, 100%. 100%. He is, he's achieved a level of fame that is kind of impossible because I, the context that made him that famous can't happen again. Like, I don't think there'll be another paperback zeitgeist horror zeitgeist you know keep talking about the baby boomers but it's also kind of impossible to talk about Stephen King without talking about baby boomers as a as a generation but like that generation achieving vanguard levels of fame in their chosen fields as popular culture was becoming a thing is also it's it's the same reason why like there have been plenty of bands as good as the Beatles but the circumstances that made the Beatles that famous can't happen again because there's already been the Beatles. So like there can be another the Beatles, but they'll just be compared to the phenomenon that was the Beatles. Like it just it can't exist. It, like the Beatles themselves even like became as famous as they were because 112263 reference here, because Kennedy had like just been shot in November. So when they take the Ed Sullivan stage in February of 64, people needed something. So there's just all these like historical things that happen that make people as famous as they are. Stephen King couldn't have been Stephen King without The Exorcist and without Rosemary's Baby and without The Other and without Brian De Palma making Carrie and without some of the other like iconic films that were made. Like just all was a confluence. And much like the Beatles, he happened to be also the best at what he was doing and the most popular. It was very rare when that happens, but like it, it happened to happen. And so he's a workhorse and he's just got this great work ethic and certain chemical stimulants that helped him along during a period of that as well. Very unique set of circumstances that propelled him to a level of fame that I, I don't think is possible for a writer again, at least until society resets itself. So yeah, to like know that he is also such a, just a decent person and like actually like care. And I, again, I say this as someone who's like desperate for him to read something I've written and like say, you know, show me some approval because he's also a very like parental figure in a probably very unhealthy way. And I apologize to him for putting that pressure on him from afar. But like, he's so good at reading other people's stuff. He's so good at staying in dialogue with the scene and the fans that made him and the other writers that revere him. He cares about it as a discipline. He cares about it as a profession. He cares about it as a legacy, not his legacy, not the legacy of Stephen King, but the legacy of writing, of being a novelist. Like he cares about these things. He knows how hard it is to be a writer. He knows how hard it is to be poor, even though he's been not poor for by far the majority of his life at this point. He was very poor for a very foundational period of his life. But then, you know, he was wealthy by the time he was the end of his 20s, at least into his 30s. He's been comfortable and then obscenely wealthy. Like, he's very rich. He's a very wealthy person. But, like, that doesn't seem to have robbed him of an empathy and of a an awareness of what it is like to not be that. Yeah. Obviously, there's, like, a hunger to his works that has changed since, like, his life has gotten more comfortable i think like his earlier works is so desperate and poor kid writing to pay the bills but like i don't think he's ever forgotten how privileged he is and like gives back he gives back 
and isn't afraid to like speak out about progressive causes. Sometimes he sticks his foot in his mouth. Sometimes he says things, you know, he's, he's, he can't help being his age and growing up in the context that he grew up in. So every now and then it's like, Ooh, that's not, that's maybe that's not quite right. And he, you know, <laughs> I will never enjoy his fandom of, of JK Rowling, but beyond that, especially for someone of his generation and of his prominence of his being in the spotlight, he really does try and use it for good things, I think. Yeah. And he's and like, I guess to answer your question, eventually, even being in his presence, I was flummoxed because I was trying to say a thousand things at the same time. But he doesn't project that. He's not intimidating to be around. He's intimidating because of who he is. But he doesn't have an air about him that's like, don't talk to me. He's just he's just a dude. He's a he's just a decent dude. It makes me so happy. It makes me so happy to know that in reality, that's who he is. Because yeah. I think there's a lot of rock stars and people that, sadly, there's one who lives here. He's the lead singer of Tool, as you know. No, yeah, yeah. Nice restaurant, though. Exactly. <laughs> He's around a lot, and I'm always like, no thanks. Because yeah. I know, I know this guy. Yeah. He's not my favorite. So... Yeah. I'm a firm believer of Never Meet Your Heroes, but King, I feel, is the exception to that because at the end of the day, he is a dude and he's just a kind guy. And now he's like a very kind grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I'm really loving these elderly benefactor tropes in his stories yeah. right now because it just, I miss my own grandfather a lot. I'm out of grandparents. They're all gone, sadly. And so it's nice to see that he's kind of like a universal grandpa right now yeah. to everybody. And it's just, yeah. it makes me so happy that he is who he is. Aside yeah. from all the fame and talent, he's a blue collar, nice guy or a blue collar mentality. Yeah. And his kids are great. Right. His kids are really lovely. Yeah. All three of them are, I think, who knows, obviously there, there are other people and we can't see into their private lives, but like they all seem to be very decent, well-adjusted people. His wife is also a brilliant writer. They've stayed married. And like, who can only fucking imagine what it would have been like to have been that famous in the 70s and 80s and to like still be able to hold your marriage together? Yeah. Like, I'm sure there are stories we don't know about, but like <laughs> that implies a level of commitment that is so admirable. And yeah, he's just a, I also as you see, when you read the afterword of nestlings, I don't have grandparents and I don't have parents anymore, too. So like, there's just like something about him, too, that is I'm repeating myself already. But there is a reason why I wanted to write that dedication to him, not just because I read his books as a kid. But like, there is just this feeling of thank you for kind of being a parent. You don't know me like you have millions of other fans who would probably say the same thing and feel the yeah. same way. So it's, I'm not saying I'm special in this regard, but that is a special position to be in. And I think he fills it very responsibly. Oh, so nice, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> now, please read my books. Right? <laughs> please. Absolutely. <laughs> These concentrator reviews, they're becoming so cathartic for me. I really am I'm an emotional dish rag here, just getting <laughs> squeezed, and it's great. We have made it to the last question. We did it. All right, Nat. Your top five, you of course can have more. Yeah, it's not going to be five. <laughs> I applaud. You take it to level 11. I'm uh, all about that. That's how I like to roll. I'm a Libra. I can't choose. Get I, it. Yeah. Constitutionally cannot do it. 
If you take the first group of novels as one novel, I'm talking Carrie, Salem's Lot, Shining, The Stand, The Dead Zone. It's like a single entry. You can even throw Firestarter and Cujo in there if you want. But then you also got to add Pet Cemetery. So like, let's just cut it at The Dead Zone. Because everyone kind of agrees Firestarter is great. I love Firestarter, but it's just like slightly less perfect as those first. If they can have a single slot, then somewhere in the bottom of the top, <laughs> not the bottom, but somewhere in like the <laughs> bottom of, of the best is It and Wizarding Glass. And then it's just like chaos as to like which one will fit where. But I can tell you there is Black House. I adore Black House from a Buick 8. I adore Insomnia, Gerald's Game, Pet Cemetery, Cujo, maybe Desperation. Stuff about Desperation that doesn't quite hold up, but there's a lot of... I love that it is an, an unapologetically religious book, even though I don't subscribe to that religion like that. There's just something very beautiful about it, being about God is love and like a child savior. It's just really interesting. I don't love that character that much. David is kind of annoying, but <laughs> but I still love that book and the idea of that book. And it's a desert book. Like, how could I not love that book? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Those, I think, are the... Because there's, there's just something about that first group of books that is so unfair to a top five listing because it could just be those five it could just be carrie salem's lot the shining the stand the dead zone and then like you're just missing so much more so like those have to have their own special place and yeah then i would throw the rest of those i'm sure there are others i'm not thinking of we haven't even talked about the girl who loved tom gordon that's a long <gasps> book oh you love that missing? one yeah that book is great i don't even like baseball thank you nat thank you it's fantastic it is and it just it doesn't even get talked about. No. I love little Trisha. Yeah. I just think it's so powerful. It's so great. It's meaningful. Oh, I'm so glad mm -hmm. you're saying this. The fucking evil bear. I, I love know. It. We haven't talked about Eyes of the Dragon. That's a great oh, book. Oh, so good. Not my favorite, but nothing wrong with it. It's a great book. It had heart. I really yeah, liked it. It does. Also a Dark Tower novel and never gets resolved. Sorry to spoil that for you. Don't go into wanting to know what happens to those princes. Uh, you're never going to find out. I love Flag in that. Yeah, Flag's great. Stoic and silent and how yeah. he's been there for a couple hundred years and very... Oh, I love it. And it's another Roland. Roland the Good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I can probably make a case for any of his books being my favorite. Except for the two I mentioned. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Mr. Cassidy, this has been priceless that's oh. the one word i have this is just priceless agreed i would put no price on it <laughs> thank you for all of your passion and brilliance i just ugh, this is it's so this is what happens when it's so good and i can't <laughs> speak when i lose words that's how you know brain has melted because i'm on another plane of awesome <laughs> I think I just wore you down with my long answers. I think that's what you're feeling. It's just fatigue. False. Not true. <laughs> no. I'm so grateful for a King fan like yourself to share what he's meant to you throughout your life. Because I know there are many others out there like you in this mm. community, but every journey is different and special. I mean, your life 
has been mapped by uh -huh. King, and it's so special. It's so special to get to ask somebody about that. So thank you for bringing the whole enchilada. <laughs> thank you for giving me the space to do it. Because normally when I talk about Stephen King, it's usually in the context of like one of my books. So like I have to stop talking about him so I can talk about the book. It was so nice to just get to fucking fan vomit. It's great, right? <laughs> Everybody needs it. And you definitely, some of these answers I've never heard before. And oh man, there's some hot, hot ones in here. <laughs> Spicy chili pepper. I love it. You deserve it. nothing less. Yay! But as we conclude, can you tell everybody out there what you're up to? Let's talk about nestlings a little bit. Whatever you want to plug. Nestlings came out a month ago. It is a, the comps are Rosemary's Baby meets Salem's Lot. So if you like Salem's Lot, and it's very shining e too. So Stephen King fans who want that sort of story should go check out Nestlings. My previous book, Mary, is much more like Carrie and the Dark Half, which is another book we didn't talk about. And I could talk about the Dark Half a lot. I fucking love the Dark Half. <laughs> Great book and an undervalued book. But uh, yeah, that's a lot more like weird and gooey and surreal and, and strange, but is also written as like a response to Carrie. And those are available bookstores everywhere. And uh, next up is my book that comes out. I think it comes out in 2025, unfortunately, because the schedule just worked out that way. But that's kind of an homage to Firestarter and <gasps> it. Oh, my God. And Terminator 2, of all things. Love it. So I'm very excited for people to read that. That is called hasn't been officially announced yet, but I, I can tell you. Maybe it'll be announced by the time this airs. It's called When the Wolf Comes Home. <gasps> so I'm very excited for that. That's like my homage to like airport thrillers. It's just like action-packed horror. And yeah, I've got some short stories coming out next year. And also hasn't been announced yet, but I should have a novella coming out next year that was very much written as like a homage to a different seasons or four past midnight sort of novella. Yeah, and I'm on all the social medias. I'm very bad at checking it now because I'm a social media addict. You wouldn't know by my silence on social media, but because of that, I have to limit how much time I spend on it. So I will usually just like drop a few posts and then not respond to anything. And then I'll respond to things like a week later. But you can find me on all of them at either Nat Cassidy or on Instagram. It's Catnacity because somebody took the name before I could get it. But yeah, I'm around. I'm around. And I'm probably talking about Stephen King. <laughs> Thank you once more, Nat. Thank you. Beautiful holiday season. You too. This will be released in early 2024. So you're going to start off our Year of the Dragon, which is going to be lucky, lucky, lucky. Hell yeah. We'll see the eyes of the dragon. Oh! <laughs> Mic drop. Much better title than it was originally called, which was The Napkins. Oh, dear. Yeah. No. Fun little trivia for people. Did not know that. <laughs> yep. Eyes of the Dragon, way better. Way better. Especially because there's a cavernous dragon mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. eyes. Mm -hmm. And they were amber colored. <laughs> Why do I remember that? I don't know. Why do I remember that there's a reference to the king's erect penis in like the first page? Yeah, it it's is. It like burned in my brain when I read it. It was like <laughs> 12 and I was like, what? Why is this in here? <laughs> yeah, I don't need to know that anymore. I can delete that bit of information, but now it's there. It's there forever. Sorry to end the podcast with that. <laughs> Rent free. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Mr. Cassidy. Thank you. Take care. You too. Have a good night.
That concludes my amazing time with Blazing Star author, musician, actor, playwright, Stephen King scholar, and expert, Nat Cassidy. Oh my goodness, lovies, don't you all feel so satisfied? I'm telling you, we just got Caesar salad, pasta dinner, garlic bread, red wine, and tiramisu. That's what Nat has given us all, everybody. An amazing full course of delicious, rich, decadent brilliance. I swoon! You all will be pleased to know that for the first time in my life, I was able to speak to the author whose fiction novel I was currently reading. That was a joyous first, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yes, in grad school we did have author workshops, but that was weeks after I finished the book and they weren't very good books, so I did a lot of nodding and smiling about the novel. But talking about Nat's story with Nat as I was in the midst of it, what fun, what an absolute privilege. I was the luckiest girl. I finished reading Nestlings a few weeks ago, and my guys, it's a ton of fun. It ticks all the boxes that make me smile. Gothic setting full of regal secrets? Check. Uncertain and shaky on its feet post-COVID New York City? Check. Mysterious and frightening inhabitants? Check. New family drama in the holy trinity of mother-father-child? Check. Tons of Stephen King references throughout? Like every page? Check. You bet, my good buddies. Check, check, check. Dearest friends, please make sure you get your hands on Mary, on Nestlings, and keep Nat Cassidy in your sights from this day forward. Thank you once more to Mr. Nat Cassidy for being my rusty, dusty Southwestern King buddy and providing such an amazing, our very first of 2024, Constant Reader interview. Okay, sweet ones, that will take us to the end. Once more, if you haven't yet shared this show with a Stephen King fan in your life, let's do that. And while you've got us pulled up on your phone or hyperlink somewhere or on YouTube, because we're there now, would you be so kind to rate, review, and subscribe to the show as it would really, really, in the words of Dirty Harry, make our day. At present, I have wind through the keyhole, cracked open and ready to go, so the next episode will feature the epic return to Roland and the Cotet in a standalone Dark Tower novel that, to my knowledge, occurs right after Wizard and Glass. So, in a way, kinda sorta, I'm picking up right where I left off. Wish me luck. Thank you all so very much for listening. I hope January is treating you well. My January has been a bit on the rougher side as my unicorn luck ran out after four years and I got bit by COVID. Thankfully, symptoms are mild and I'm on the mend, but a reminder to you all, please take your vitamins, get your rest, be gentle with yourselves, and I'll talk to you all about the cotet very soon. <laughs>